Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast by Paul Meyer on the spoken word. Episode 2, March 2018, audiobook narration. Hi, this is Paul. We are undoubtedly a storytelling species. Our culture, our memories, our language is transmitted orally. We listen to stories, we tell stories, we exchange stories. Conversation is little more than an exchange of stories intercut with each other. Maybe we're not the only storytelling species. Maybe those humpback whales with their wonderful songs, or even the dances of bees as they communicate the best place to get the pollen. Maybe that's a storytelling act. So maybe we share storytelling with other species, and we're not alone. It's not our single defining characteristic, but it's certainly a strong part of human culture, isn't it? We tell stories about exotic places, other times, the daily news, what's happened in other countries, what's happened in the capital city, what did our great leaders do or not do today, the weather, what's it going to be tomorrow, prophetic stories, a weather forecast. Even the academic study of our history is storytelling thinly disguised. What have our people been up to in centuries past? How did we get to where we are now? History. Of course, in the earliest times, the storytelling was entirely oral. Before writing was invented, thousands and thousands of years, people were telling stories. People would come back from the hunt and recount their adventures where they went, what they did, what they saw, embellishing their their feats, no doubt. Then later in our history, human writing was invented, perhaps only once, and perhaps it wasn't used for anything more than storing the uh, statistics from the year's harvest. Maybe it was many, many hundreds of years before the chronicles of the tribe were set down in writing. And even then, only a few people could read them. Maybe the professional storytellers could read and committed those chronicles to memory, the Homeric tradition. And then, of course, storytelling entirely composed on paper or slate or papyrus came to be the norm. So we've sort of come full circle from an entirely orally composed and delivered storytelling society We now write our stories, and they are read silently by the reader. And a strange breed has arisen among us, which we call the audiobook narrator, who takes a story written for the page and recreates it through voice. My own very first professional acting gig was audiobook narration. The BBC called it Book at Bedtime. And I was hired by the BBC to read Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. And you know, it's remained my very, very favourite book of all time, even though I've done 50 or 60 since. It's never been my principal activity as an actor, but I've always enjoyed it. It's always fascinated me how we attempt to retain the attention of the listener for hour after hour with a compelling narrative, subtly characterized characters. So here's just a little bit of of that very, very first professional gig that I did all those years ago of Mice and Men. Steinbeck tells us uh, the story of George and Lenny, of course. Lenny, the gentle giant who doesn't know his own strength and 
inadvertently kills that woman back at the ranch and they escape with the ranch hands in hot pursuit and they take a pause in a forest clearing and Steinbeck tells us that George took off his hat. He said shakily, Take off your hat, Lenny. The air feels fine. Lenny removed his hat dutifully and laid it on the ground in front of him. On the wind, the sound of crashing in the brush came to them. Lenny said, Tell how it's going to be. Look across the river, Lenny, and I'll tell you so you can almost see it. Lenny turned his head and looked off across the pool. We ain't going to get a little place, George began. He reached in his side pocket and brought out Carlson's Luger. He looked at the back of Lenny's head at the place where the spine and skull were joined. A man's voice called from up the river, and another man answered. Go on, said Lenny. George raised the gun, and his hand shook, and he dropped his hand to the ground again. Go on, said Lenny. How's it gonna be? We gonna get a little place? We'll have a cow, said George. And we'll have maybe a pig and chickens, and down the flat we'll have a little piece of alfalfa. For the rabbits, Lenny shouted. For the rabbits, George repeated. And I get to tend the rabbits, and you get to tend the rabbits. Lenny giggled with happiness. And live on the fat of the land. He's heard that story so many times. It's his favorite story. And it's the story he hears at the point of death. When, to prevent him falling into the hands of the posse, George shoots him. So my two guests are Julia Whalen and uh, David Gilbert, both absolute masters of audiobook narration, having done hundreds of audiobooks between them. I first met Julia when I was coaching her in the Pennsylvania Dutch accent she needed for The Confession, a, a film about the Amish community in Pennsylvania. She's done films and television series, including ABC's Once and Again. She studied English and creative writing at Middlebury College and Oxford University. What a great way to begin a audiobook narration career, and she's recorded literally hundreds of novels. She's the recipient of Earphone and Audi Awards and was Audible's Narrator of the Year in 2014. And I've been working with her recently as she prepares to voice her own debut novel, My Oxford Year, which uh, is simultaneously published as, as a book and as an audiobook and is in preparation as a as a feature film. Tavia Gilbert. I first met uh, Tavia, I think, through the Audio Publishers Association. I She asked me to do a master class on audiobook character design, involving accents, of course, but voices as well. She won the Audio Award last year, 2017, for Best Female Narrator for the novel Be Frank With Me by Julia Claiborne Johnson. She's done over 500 full-cast and multi-voice audiobooks, nine-time Audi nominee, three-time nominee, and one-time winner of Voice Arts Award, 17 Earphones Awards. She uh, 
Started her academic career with a BFA in acting from Cornish College of the Arts. Studied audio documentary storytelling at the Salt Institute and has an MFA in creative non-fiction from Vermont College of Fine Arts. And here's my conversation with them, which I recorded a week or so ago. So it's great to be talking to you guys. I just now realized, uh, just found out that you were close friends and you're both <laughs> masters, mistresses of of the art form with many hundreds of audiobooks to your credit. So the topic that I really want to address and want to draw out of you is what do you think it takes to be a great audiobook reader? Tavia. The most essential quality of a great audiobook narrator is emotional intimacy, um, creating an authentic, truly emotionally rich read. And then something I think that is less talked about that I think is vitally important is that an audiobook narrator should be a reader. They should be somebody who loves language and is curious about how language works and how stories are communicated. Um, they should have a sensitivity to what's on the page. So I'm always kind of shocked when I meet an audiobook narrator who's who doesn't talk about their love of reading. I think that's mm-hmm. imperative. And then from the love of reading comes part of that is emotional intimacy in in your spirit, how you approach the work on the page. I like that. Julia, you and I are working on your very, your debut novel, My Oxford Year. We uh, are. You're going to publish it, so you're going to be both the author and the reader. And so, uh, we've been working together on, on that set in England, of course, with all of those English accents that I've been helping you with. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> Congratulations, Julia. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just finished recording it yesterday, actually. So I'm yeah. coming off of six days of, um, of, yeah, just living in that world. And now I can blame myself for all the things that I used to blame <laughs> authors for. So. so as a practitioner and as a consumer of audiobooks, what does it take to be great? I would absolutely piggyback on what Tavia said. I think that in the world of actors, audiobooks can be a pretty consistent gig if you're you're good at it and you develop and you you have a following and so i think a lot of actors see this as something that they would like to do and i always come up against i think that there's a venn diagram of people there's really good actors and then there's as tavia said people who are deep readers and i think that that's a very small intersection of Mm -hmm. people who fit both of those qualifications and so i always tell actors who want to get into it it's like well maybe lock yourself in a airless closet for eight hours and just read by yourself and see how much you love it (laughs) at that point. Because (laughs) I think that it's a, they're two different skill sets and people that I really respect and the people that I think do an amazing job are the ones who have some kind of literary background, who are just voracious readers, who understand story at a level that not necessarily a quality actor would. Totally agree. Do you have to have a thousand voices to be successful and compelling in this art? Do you need to be a master of accents and dialects and character voices, a chameleon? Certainly not. (laughs) I think, I mean, some people don't. Some people have really thriving careers. Um, And I, I will change, I can just speak for myself, I will change how much characterization I do depending on the book. Like, I don't, I don't, 
perform the cast of a thousand characters for a memoir, for instance. I just dial it back. I let the word speak nonfiction as a completely different animal. So I really tailor my performance to the category and voice of the book. Some some books seem to demand a virtuoso performance of all of those voices, don't they? And Oh, sure. Fantasy, for instance. It's just fun. If I'm doing a kid's book, mm-hmm. of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have fun. I'm going to read to that kid as if I'm putting them to bed. That's the, that's the fun of it. I think the point Julia's making is really important, that she will perform based on what the text calls for, and that's where being a close, sensitive reader comes into play. Maybe 99% of memoirs don't require or would be actually lessened with character voices, but there might be that particular memoir that, that calls for them for whatever reason. Each book's voice is different. The really skilled narrators... Uh, in fact, I've just gotten feedback from people who were sending me notes of appreciation about a series that I narrated and I mentioned another series that they might like and they said I've heard that but I had no idea that was you (laughs) you sounded nothing like you did in this series that I wrote you about and that's the skill each book requires something different so having the facility to do dialects and a hundred voices is nice but most important is embodying that particular book's needs and what it calls for what what the voice of the book is right uh, Julia, when you and I started working on my Oxford year, I said to you, as I recall, is it absolutely necessary that Julia be able to nail 17 different English dialects? The, the, <laughs> right. the, the character, the first person narrator, the, the, the young woman who went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, wh- where is the compulsion that she must be uh, a mistress of, of a thousand dialects? And that sort of lets you off the hook, I think, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and I'm I'm thinking more and more that I should have gone with that first <laughs> that first impulse of yours. No, I mean, look, I think that I think that 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 was a very valid suggestion, and it is something that we, you know, I went back and forth on too because the book is first person present at the same time. It is still fiction; it's not a memoir, and it is kind of an audiobook convention that we suspend that disbelief when we're dealing with first person, that you're still dealing with a populated world and that world has to be built with characters. Mm. So that was the impulse. But I think you had a you had a valid point and it could have honestly gone either way and maybe with a different narrator they would have chosen to do it a different way i can think of i can think of a reader who chooses to invest heavily in different characters and different accents as being coming come across as a little spooky uh, that they are so bent on disappearing inside a million characters that their own essential filter as the as the first person narrator gets a little lost i mean if suddenly someone at a dinner party launches into dead ringer uh, impersonations of the people in their story, isn't that a little bit about the narrator and not about the story? Absolutely. And I don't think anyone, I mean, I'm not one of, I don't think anyone would accuse me of disappearing so entirely into the book that they don't know that it, it, it has that quality. I'm not a mimic. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't do right. impersonations. And I think that that's a, that's a completely different skill set. I mean, Tavia, do you, do you agree with that? I do. 
I'm not a person who can hear a dialect and then masterfully recreate it perfectly. There are some people who can do that, and that's amazing. But my skill and talent, I think, is in being authentic, making dialogue sound like it is conversation between two or five people. And that's always about being in the moment, being emotionally connected. So I want my dialect work and my character work to sound real and um, believable, but I'm not concerned about making it an absolute perfect, you know, just obsessively prepared piece of work. That's not the point for me. No, and again, and, to, and Paul, to your point about the how sometimes a kind of narrator puts himself in front of the text, I think that the other thing that fueled my decision to go with full characters for my Oxford year was the fact that this is a story about a fish out of water. And this is a story about a young woman getting thrown into the deep end of something and finding herself. And to create the the experience of that for the listener, I think part of that is having people who sound different, who speak differently, who phrase things differently. That's all part of that immersive experience that when you're telling the story, you want to try to create in whatever way you can with whatever tools you have available to you. I like that. Tavia, before we started recording today, we were discussing your your work with the, uh, what's the title, Frank? My Be Frank With Me. Mm. Frank With Me. And, and you would remind Julia and, and the listeners about how the author describes the voice and speech of that character and how you wrestled with that. So Frank is a young boy, about 10 years old, who's on the spectrum. And his delivery uh, was described as monotone. And I can't re- recall if she said it was rapid fire or machine gun fire, but that was his vocal quality. So in this eight or nine hour book with the central character, a young boy with these very narrow parameters of what his vocal delivery was supposed to sound like, I needed to create a voice that somebody could sustain and bear to listen to for for many hours and also a voice that exemplified a character that we were to fall in love with and root for and want to protect and who was very emotional and sensitive and perceptive, even though it didn't necessarily express itself through the musicality or emphasis of his dialogue. Um, I'm glad that it worked for the listeners and that people so deeply identified with and fell in love with Frank that that was sort of beyond me. It was just coming through me. Well, Tavia, was that the one you won the Audi for last year? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What a huge honor. <laughs> yes, huge. It was. Well, it's, it, it's an honor to be on the call with Julia because Julia is a masterful narrator, one whose work I adore listening to. And she's so skilled and so powerful in her work. And she is not a mimic, but she certainly sounds different from book to book, project to project, because she is so smart and such a good reader and such a great actress. All of that comes together to make her performances really extraordinary. And surely the truth of any character, of any story, uh, is beneath the surface. It's not in the tone of voice of the speaker. Uh, it's not in the pace of the speaker. It's not in their command of language, but something of their soul can be conveyed when you are, when you are immersed in that person's journey through time. And I think the, the listener is, is looking for that. And if 
no matter how great the voice is, no matter how fantastic the speech is, you know, whether it's a an actor who can read the telephone book to you and you'd, you'd be mesmerized, that, as you were saying earlier, is unimportant, isn't it? And most people think mm. you've got to have a great voice and speech to be an audiobook narrator, but it's it's really not as true as people think, right? It's it's very true. It really has nothing to do with the nothing. sound of someone's voice. It can be nice if you have an instrument that's that's lovely, but it's it can actually get in the way of your performance if you're concerned with the gorgeousness of your instrument. It's not about that. It's about what you do with it, how you get out of the way of it, how you let the book move through you. And I think a lot of that has to do with just respecting the the text. I mean, what is the author's intent? That's the thing, first and foremost, not what do I want to show off with this book? It's mm. what are we, what was the goal here of the author? And I think that another interesting kind of thing that we all have in common, not all of us, but many of us have in common, Tavi and I for sure, is that we both come from a writing background. And so we have that sensitivity to an author's intent that is different from an actor out there, you know, trying to just on their own, trying to stand for something or show themselves off in some way. That's really not the first priority. Do either of you consciously have particular vocal or speech techniques that will sustain an a listener's interest hour after hour? Do you consciously change pace? Do you ch- yes. Do you consciously change <laughs> uh, the dynamics? How do you, do you consciously apply vocal paragraphing? Tell, tell me about about the nuts and bolts that the, the listener should never be aware of, but which unconsciously on their part is, is part of why they're sustained in their interest. Yeah, to me, variety is really what it comes down to. What Tavia said just a minute ago about developing Frank's voice and in certain ways it was easier to show a change of emotion in him because when he did slow down or when he did take a minute it that just the difference of that highlighted Mm -hmm. the emotional resonance of it and that is something that I I think works on a sentence to sentence paragraph to paragraph level in what we do that you know if I'm in a rapid fire action sequence I'm going to find a moment every paragraph or so to stop to pause to let everyone kind of download what they've just heard and then right back into the action right well for the most part it's not about imposing anything on the text it's really following exactly what the writer intended and embodying it so when i coach writers in how they can read their work aloud more effectively i say you are reading like a freight train hurling down the tracks with hardly a room for breath but you're, you've written on the page a scene that is presumably happening in real time, playing out as if it were reality. Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, the scene must actually live. So follow the roadmap of the punctuation. There must be room for breath. Just because there's another character black and white on the page doesn't mean you immediately move on to that next thing. Your characters are breathing in the world, and that, I think, differentiates my performances from others because breath is the body language of voice acting. So there has to be space for breath, maybe a sigh, maybe a gathering of courage by a breathing in. All of that has to also be a part of the performance. Do you do that? That's fascinating to me. I always wanted to do it, and then I'm afraid they're going to take it out. You do it? Oh, I do it all (sighs) the time. Okay, I'm doing it. Forget do it. Doing yes. It. <laughs> it frees you because 
there was a there was a line on um one of the best choices that I've ever made was in St. Maisie by Jamie Attenberg. And there are three parts where a woman is disclosing her, her deepest, most painful loss of her life to her lover. And he says, I'm sorry. And on the page, it says, me too, me too, me too. So I could have performed it. Me too, me too, me too. But I that would not have been true to actually what was going on in the scene. So I slowed it way down and I was very emotional. So it came out with tears behind it. Me too. Me too. Me too. Hmm. And that was real. That was what was happening between those lovers in that hotel room. It wasn't me too, me too, me too. But I took the liberty and I think that was what the writer intended, was for that scene to really be really living in real time. It strikes me that an author of books using just words on a page doesn't have the luxury that a composer of music has in indicating the techniques of sustaining a note or changing using rubato. Or, and yet we, audiobook narrators, we see the words coming at us off the page at the same rate every minute, you know, 12 or 15 words per line. And yet that doesn't convey the way real conversation lives and breathes and changes pace, does it? So I'm conscious of a, the difference between literary rhythm and the, the actual rhythms of unscripted speech. What do you think? To that end, I think that there is... The only way that a writer can convey that, you're, you're completely right that we don't have the mechanism, but I, I think that that's what the white space is. Mm-hmm. And that's how you use a page. I mean, they always say that about poetry, right? But I think that that's true in prose as well. And so again, this goes to an audiobook reader having some kind of understanding of those choices that they're deliberate, where a line break goes, how many words are in a sentence what the punctuation is, that fuels the interpretation of the performance. Yeah. I don't feel like there's a difference between literary and not. The only difference in is that when I'm doing the deepest literary work, the best written work, often there is no absolute for how a line of dialogue can be said. It's ambiguous. It could mean anything. And that's some that's a choice that the writer has made on the page to leave open for the reader's interpretation. But then when I get the script, I have to make a choice on some level to go in maybe a couple different directions. I can play a couple different things at once. But do you know what I'm talking about, Julia? Have you run into that? Yes. And in fact, I would I would say that sometimes when I feel like I'm failing the most at my job, it's when I have a book that is so well written that I feel that I'm in the way Mm -hmm. because I just want to have the experience and I want everyone else to have the experience of reading it and feeling whatever they're going to feel without my interpretation. Right. Um, But I think that to Paul's question about how literary dialogue, for instance, differs from speech, one of one of my biggest challenges, I suppose, in this in this job is the inability to improvise. And by improvise, I don't mean change it. I just mean have the space within a line. This usually comes to bear when I'm doing an accent, specifically of a non-English speaker. So if I'm doing a French accent, I can do a, you know, 
decent French accent, but I can't um, add a little uh, the pause, the sort of um, mm. bridge between thoughts. I can't do that because it's not in the sentence. It's not that word is not there. So therefore, it cannot be done. And that drives me crazy because if I were acting it on film, I would be able to have that loose interpretation of how does the how do I get the thought out? And we can't do that in our job. I don't know if it's a yeah. convention or it's whisper sync or whatever, but it drives me crazy. Well, Julie, I, I'm wondering if we disagree here because if you're inserting language, yes, that's not acceptable. But if you're inserting pauses or the breath, I would totally give myself license to do that. I think the pauses and the breath, sure. I, but the, you know, I, I don't know, maybe this is just, I was always taught letter perfect, do not deviate. You can't add the, the, that sort of yes, thing. Yes, that. And that's where I, that's where you're taking away my ability to perform whatever obstacles this character may have in front of them at the moment, whether it's, even if it's just getting the sentence out and therefore the character is going to be a little flatter than I would like them to be. Mm-hmm. Julia, don't you have that license when you're reading characters' speech, direct speech, in the same way that you have as a film actor to interpret a line and make it sound fresh and freshly discovered, freshly minted in the mind of the character? Do you not have that liberty ever, then, when you're reading a line of dialogue in in an audiobook? No, I mean, at least, again, in terms of the convention of the way this needs to be done, you get, you get corrections back if something is muddled or unclear or a word is not totally understandable or there's, you know, more breathing or that, that bridge, that space filler. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to do that again. Mm-hmm. So they want it fluent. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's a, to me, that's probably for me the, the biggest hurdle I have to, to performance because those are not the things an author writes in, but I know that that's the intention. If, especially if you're dealing with a character from another background coming at it from a different, from another language, you don't mean, you don't write that character as if they're letter perfect, but you, you do that because you're not going to write in the, uh, ums. Mm -hmm. Here's an interesting thing, at least interesting to me. Nobody listening to our podcast would suspect for a minute that we are reading a script. They know it's, improvised. Mm-hmm. And yet I wonder if our industry denies us that ability, that permission to convey the the improvisatory nature of human communication by insisting on that fluency that that constrains us. I think we make up for the limitation of not being able to improvise by making it sound improvisational because like a stage actor or a film actor, the audiobook actor's art is discovery. So we have to deliver dialogue and narrative as though we are discovering it along with the reader, that it's not preordained and prescriptive, but we are in a state of discovering it. And, and I've just listened to the last sentence you've uttered, and it was full of the momentary hesitations that characterize human speech. Mm-hmm. Do you bring that same hesitation, those that same phrasing, when you read a character? Yeah. I try, yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I want them. I want dialogue to sound as though the listener is overhearing a real live conversation. So, Absolutely. So it's not in adding or, distri- or or subtracting words from the text that you're given, but in 
mimicking the phrasing and has momentary hesitations that characterize real human speech then it's finding the thought finding the thought making it seem to be freshly birthed and i think that what we have to use because remember we can only really just rely on our on our voice so in an on camera scene where you might be able to have a certain physical tell that would give you that hesitation or in radio drama where the the clink of the teacup and the sip of the yes we we have to be able to do that with subtle detail in our voice and that's why i think my impulse of i want to be able to add more space fillers whether they're laughs or breaths as tavia does and it makes me it's thrilling to me to hear that they don't throw that back to her because now Mm -mm. i'm doing it i'm doing it good Um, yeah but i think that that's a um you know, we have to we have to convey everything that's going on in that scene just with our our vocal life. Fantastic. Clearly, we have to embody characters in an audio book that we would never in a million years play on stage or film. And I know you guys have had some very strange assignments in that regard. Talk about those. One of my favorite books of my life was Sing Them Home by Stephanie Kalos, who's an amazing novelist. And I had over a hundred characters, including a 100-year-old Welsh man who sang and a precocious four-year-old and every age in between. And we get to inhabit characters of a different age, race, gender, time period. You know, everything is done in a solo voice. So the most important thing is to not comment on, but to really honor every character. Audiobooks brings up a lot of ethical questions, which is a really wonderful part of the job and a surprising part that we are confronted with our own ideas of how how a certain type of person should sound. So then we get to question, well, why do I think they would sound that way? Is that my own limited thinking or my own limited life experience? Is that really authentic? How can I research? How can I flesh that out? How can I challenge my own stereotypes and my own limitations so that this character is honored as a real breathing human being? And one of the things that we discover when listening to the uh, idea archive is that people usually do not conform to an audience's expectations. Absolutely. Or the biographical detail makes a difference where they, if they spent 10 years abroad, if they have a a PhD, if that, you know, what with their mother was from a different country, it all affects the way that we speak. I had a character in a series um, that was a was built like a football player, but a gay Texan. And I remember when I first got the book, you know, this was, I don't know, five years ago, thinking, I don't know what this sounds like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't have a basis for it. And so I just decided because he was kind of the star football player at his high school and he's a very physical guy. I was just going to play him as a Texan and I was not going to do any sort of stereotypical gay affectation. That was how I felt most comfortable because I didn't want to kind of impose something on this character that to me the fact that he was gay was probably the least important part of his speech and we haven't mentioned yet our duty to allow the listener to participate in the creation of a character if we do i'm very fond of telling people i train if you do all the work for them there's nothing left for them to do yes Mm -hmm. it's that old adage right of we're not going to cry we're going to make you cry Mm -hmm. that's our job 
that said, though, I I will cry all over a book. I'm happy to about that. In in our closing minutes, guys, a few words of advice for the aspiring audiobook narrator. I think Julia's test is really appropriate. If you want to consider the possibility, start by going into a very confined space, the smallest closet you can find, sit with a book, read aloud for a full hour. Every time you make a mistake, go back to the top of the sentence or phrase and begin again. And at the end of an hour, you'll have some more information about whether you think that's a bearable way to spend your time. If you're having a good time, then check out the Audio Publishers Association that has education and networking opportunities. Listen voraciously to audiobooks so much so that you listen through the entertainment and can start considering the craft decisions. And if you love to read and you love language, then definitely give give a, some serious consideration as a career path. And I think it's important to also remember, I mean, the Andy Arndt um, tweeted something the other day, which I thought was really smart, because so many people come up to me and to all of us and say, you know, people always tell me I have a good voice. I, mm. I should be doing audiobooks. And her tweet essentially said, you know, I wish someone would come up and say, you know, I'm a very good small business owner. Yes, I should do audiobooks. Yes. <laughs> and I think that that's that's a reality of this, too, is, you know, especially as I as I said, I see this with a lot of actors. They think, oh, this is steady work. And you're well, it's it's not steady work. First of all, it's freelance. Nothing's guaranteed. Secondly, if if you're going to just get a job, if you're going to get that TV job and leave and you're going to be prioritizing your film or TV or theater auditions over your studio hours, that's going to be a problem ultimately. And I think that you just need to know what kind of career you're looking for and what kind of actor you want to be. And this is a, this is a great job for someone like me who was an English major in college and a writer. And mostly so I could just read all day. And here I am reading all day. It's fantastic, but it's definitely not for everyone. I would thank you so very much for uh, being with me today and conversing with me. Thanks for the invitation, Paul. And thanks for everything you do for the audiobook community. Like I told you earlier, I use your archive every single day. I wouldn't be able to do my work without what you do. Very true. And most appropriately, let's end with some brief excerpts from the art of Julia and Tavia first. A little of my Oxford year from Julia. Finally, he says, Forgive my bluntness, but you want to do it again? No, I would never. But his eyes whip to mine, surprised. Actually, yes. He inhales. But I can't, is the point. I look steadily into his eyes, making a decision. Jamie, I say carefully, I have a shelf life here. I hand in my dissertation and I'm on a plane to Washington, no matter what. He shakes his head. Those types of arrangements never seem to work out as planned. I shake my head back at him. They don't work because people don't know what they want. We do, or we know what we don't want, a relationship. We look at each other. One condition... Instantly, he looks panicked, like a stray dog convinced that the food in my hand is just a ruse and I'm going to grab him by the scruff as soon as he comes near enough. If we do this, we have to be honest with each other. 
If one of us is getting bored or starting to have feelings they shouldn't, no lying. We need to be honest about it. You want honesty? He looks me dead in the eye, eyes sparkling like they were last night. When you dropped that sheet this morning, it took every shred of my willpower to leave. We stare at each other until everything around us blurs away and all I can see is him, those swimming whole eyes. I moisten my lips. I stick out my hand with a challenging smile. What do you say? He considers my hand, tempted, but shakes his head instead. I still don't think it's a good idea. Don't think, Professor. Feel. He tips his head, touché, a rueful acknowledgement, but takes a step back from me, and I find myself wishing he'd kiss me. If this is going to be it, I want to have an accurate, sober memory of what his lips feel like. Our kisses last night were a hurried, sloppy means to an end. I'm better than that, and I'd like to think he is as well. But he turns away, faces the door. He stops. He pauses. He turns around, strides back to me, takes my waiting hand, pulls me toward him, drops his head, and proves me right. And then some. And now from Be Frank With Me, from Tavia Gilbert. Fascinating, but listen, Frank, gentlemen, don't point. Although I guess it's all right to point at mountains. Mountains don't have feelings like people do. You aren't supposed to point at people. How else are your eyes supposed to find them? Not that way. Nobody likes to look up and see people pointing and staring. Yes, that I know from first-hand experience. Have you ever been up there to play in the snow? I asked. Up there? No, I can see it from my school. Just before winter break, they truck snow in from there and spread it on the playground for our winter festival. It's more convenient that way. And to think I'd been surprised people had their drinking water delivered. That sounds like fun, I said. Back in Omaha, we have to get our snow the old-fashioned way. Falls on us out of the sky. Here, when the hills are on fire, the ash falls like that, like snow, or the mashed potato flakes they use in movies as a stand-in for falling snow. Last summer, there was a huge brush fire and no wind, so this giant mushroom cloud of smoke hung in one place on the horizon for a week. Like an atom bomb mushroom cloud? That sounds scary. Exactly like that, except it wasn't scary. It was in the valley. Frank said the valley as if it were a world away instead of a few freeway exits. Did you know that Einstein's one regret? You know Albert Einstein, don't you? Mr. E equals MC squared. Everybody knows him. They do? Not personally, since, you know, he's dead. Yes, as of April 18th, 1955, Einstein's regret was that he signed the letter a scientist named Leo Szilard wrote to Franklin Roosevelt in 1939, warning of the danger of the Nazis inventing a nuclear fission bomb, many linked to the secrets unlocked by Einstein's famous equation. That bomb would be capable of unimaginable carnage. Einstein, who was a pacifist, felt the letter Szilard wrote also linked him to the creation of the fabled Manhattan Project. That's the one where the scientists tried to invent more affordable apartments in New York City, right? I don't know what you're talking about. Frank sounded troubled by this, like a guy who hadn't noticed an open manhole at his feet until he'd fallen into it. When would I learn? Knock, knock. Keep talking. 
The Manhattan Project, which led to the American invention of the atom bomb, dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. Did you know that the Enola Gay, the airplane that dropped the first atom bomb, was built in Omaha in 1945? I didn't know that, I said. So, Frank, you must love school. You know more than most grown-ups I've met. The other kids say I'm retarded. I thought they said you were crazy. They say that, too. They're probably mad because you're smart and make good grades. Kids are stupid like that. The teachers love you, though, right? I'll tell you what my mother says teachers don't love, Frank said, being corrected. Sheesh. You don't do that, do you? Only when teachers make factual errors. In the mirror, his shoulders hadn't tensed up, but he'd put his goggles over his eyes again. Winston Churchill failed the sixth grade, he added. Oh, yeah? Yes, Frank Lloyd Wright never finished high school, neither did Cagney or Gershwin or Ansel Adams or Irving Berlin. Charlie Chaplin and Noel Coward never even finished grade school. And that's how it's done. Two masterful demonstrations from two of the most successful and expert audiobook narrators working today. Thanks for joining me. Join me again April 1st when my guest will be my longtime colleague and collaborator, Eric Armstrong. We're going to talk about the dialects and the speech of indigenous North Americans, first people, next time on In a Manner of Speaking.